As the racing season winds down, the separation season begins. Now, when I say separation season, I don't mean the season to separate yourself from racing, although that's exactly what many of your competitors are doing. And that provides an opportunity for you to separate from the pack. Within This Is Bracket Racing Elite, we focus on growth year-round, but the gains, they're, they're small, they're incremental during race season for two reasons. Number one, because your attention as a racer is split, right? You've got upkeep, maintenance, travel, all the things involved with the racing season, in addition to a focus on your own growth. And because other racers are working hard at that time too. It's this time of year, this separation season, where putting in the work can really allow you a leg up on the competition. If you're serious about doing just that, and you'd like to surround yourself with a group of knowledgeable trainers and accountable peers with the tools, the resources, the wisdom to help you take that next step, and perhaps even with the occasional kick in the pants to keep you on track, this is Bracket Racing Elite is the answer. We've helped thousands of racers just like you take the next step toward becoming the best version of themselves on the racetrack. Elite can help you do the same. Enrollment is open as of Monday, November 27th, and it closes December 8th. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast with Luke and Jed. I'm Big Jed, Jared Pennington. He's Cool Hand Luke Bogacki. If you're a regular listener, thank you for your patronage. If you're new, you'll probably catch on soon enough. Our goal is to shed some light on the events, news, and issues in sportsman drag racing and the stars within it. Welcome back, or welcome to the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast, where we sometimes discuss U.S. Olympic athletes, adult film stars, and sportsmen drag racers. Uh, I'm solo this week. Big Jed just called in sick. He's been battling with strep throat. Uh, we had intentions and really honestly have intentions of, uh, of tackling the bulk of these off-season episodes together. Uh, it just didn't come to fruition this week, but we have a special show nonetheless. We are joined by reigning NHRA top sportsman world champion, Jimmy Lewis. Jimmy is now a two-time NHRA world champion. This uh, 2021 championship in top sportsman uh, adds to his ledger, which also includes the 1998 NHRA super gas title, a couple of near misses in between, as he mentions uh, in our conversation. And I'll be honest, like there's, there are a few audio issues here in this conversation. I apologize for that, but for the most part, we can hear Jimmy and Jimmy's words are gold. I think you're really going to enjoy this. For some of you longtime listeners may um, hearken back and see some similarities here. When Ronnie Proctor won his top sportsman world championship, we had him on the show. That's, I believe, three years ago. And it was it was kind of uplifting to hear someone that wins at that level, right, in, in top sportsman, that uh, if you remember Ronnie's interview, is essentially a, is a two-person team. It's him and his wife, right? And that's not all that common in that category. These are, these are uh, labor-intensive machines, right? And Jimmy Lewis and his wife Phyllis approached this in very much the same way with obviously similar success. It was not a 
clear road. It was not an overnight success by any stretch. Jimmy and Phyllis have owned their own team now, uh, own their own car for four or five years. And Jimmy even alludes in this in this uh, interview, you know, it was just within the last fifteen months or so that he feels like he really got a handle on it. Right? It's a it's been a learning process, and then gets into a season that we've detailed it here on the show. The just the logistics of of Jimmy's season ending run are the stuff of legend, just the willingness to travel the way that he did much less to ultimately have success on the track. We've encapsulated that as best we can. Jed and I have now we get to hear it from the horse's mouth. So with that in mind, I think I'll shut up. I'll let Jimmy do some talking up next, Jimmy Lewis. But first I wish I was teeing up big Jed, but first PJ North. By joining us on today's episode, reigning NHRA top sportsman world champion, Jimmy Lewis. Jimmy, how are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? That sounds good when you say it like that. I know it's got a nice ring to it, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Hey, man, honored to have you here. Thank you for taking some time out of your, your evening to join us. We, we try to recap each season as best we can here in the, in the off-season months, and we typically start with discussions like this with some of our, our champions and outstanding performers of the season. You're first of the 2021-2022 offseason, and I think it's fitting that we start here because I think at least the way that I follow it, your championship is the best story of 2021 and was certainly within the NHRA classes the most dramatic finish. We'll get to all of that. Um, I want to start, though. Let's backtrack a little bit. This is your second NHRA World Championship. It's hard for me to believe. It's got to be hard for you to believe. It's 23 years following your Super Gas Triumph in 1998. Is that right? That is correct. All right. So that championship back in 1998 was obviously the the high water point of an incredible, what, two decades in, in the super classes. Talk a little bit about the initial transition, like what what got what piqued your interest about moving into the fast brackets and ultimately into top sportsmen back in the first place? Well, I've, I've just always been intrigued by the fast door cars and uh, top sportsman was out of my range at one time, but the guy I was driving for decided he wanted to buy a new car and actually wanted to buy a new super gas car. And I said, you know, I've got a nice super gas car. I don't really want one of those. I like what I have, but if you want to buy a new car, I'd buy a top sportsman car. This was back when I ran Tracy's engines at sunset and uh, drove some for Tracy, some own stuff. And anyway, we decided to go with the top sportsman car. So ordered that car, bought it, uh, never really got to run a full season with that car. We were always waiting on parts or had, unfortunately or fortunately enough had too many cars to run and it didn't always fit in the trailer of the program. And, and back then they were selective on classes. They ran at nationals. They didn't run top sportsman at hardly any nationals back then. And so I just, we finally got it going, but not like I say not a full season, but I always really liked the top sportsman uh, program, the people, the, just the, the fast bracket really appealed to me. From a driving standpoint, was it kind of love at first sight or love at first ride? Uh, it's, it, it is a 
love at first ride. Yeah, the burnout, the 200 mile an hour door car. I mean, it's, it's, and when you're in a good door car, the 200 really, it really don't seem like 200, but it, it is still fun. No question. And at what point, I know you went from working with Tracy. Uh, I think there was a brief stint there driving with Buddy Wood as well. And at some point, ultimately transitioned into your own top sportsman car. Like, what was the, the catalyst for that? And was that a difficult decision? I mean, obviously, jumping into top sportsman on your own dime is, is no small jump. That is very true. And uh, like I say, years ago, I couldn't have done that and wouldn't have done it. I think I, I guess I was smarter back then. But anyway, uh, what brought it to us to my own operation is the, about four years ago, Buddy called me and, and said he was quitting and sold the, he had sold the top sportsman car and then said he was quitting everything else. So I was out of a ride and I, I talked with Phyllis and I said, you know, I'm, I'm, I really like top sportsman and I think I'm not done in that class. I think there's more there that I need to accomplish or can accomplish. And so I started looking for cars on my own. I, I really didn't have the money to, to do it, but I just, I wanted to do it and felt like I should. So I made it happen and found this car. I bought this car from Kenny Laughlin and uh, he, uh, he had ran it as a comp car. It was built initially as a comp car. And uh, so bought the car and about probably eight or 10 years ago, Joe Hessling came to Vegas with a dragster and a pro charger engine in it. And I was amazed, simply amazed. I mean, he showed up with this car that sounded like it'd go out there and run about a 7.30 at Vegas. And he goes out there and goes 6.30s and drives it to the lane, drives it back. I was like, man, I got to have one of those. And so that was about six or eight years later, I finally got one, got it. I was kind of interested in putting one in the other top sportsman car, but my car owner, engine builder wasn't at the time. So... We did, and we stuck with what we had. And once I went to my own car, my own program, my own funding, then I got what I wanted, and which was a pro charger engine because they're they're just to me they're impressive. No question, they're impressive, and and it feels like the the top dragster class again. This is just me from the outside adopted the the pro charger setup pretty quickly, and it. I think it's fair to say like that's more than half of the top dragsters you see today. That's beginning to infiltrate more in top sportsmen, but you were one of the few kind of on the front edge of that, were you not? Probably. I mean, there were some guys way back. Uh, I know Benjamin Board's been running one for a long time. Lester Johnson ran one for a long time, but there was, it was, it was very few and far between. And I think part of the reason, I mean, I've been running this combination since 2017. And we have really just in the past probably 12 to 15 months really got a handle on it. The, the engine's not a big change, but when you're worth 2,600 pounds, which is quite a bit heavier than the dragster, but that's our minimum. And to get the, the car, the four length, the converter, the transmission, everything ironed out to make it competitive and repeatable, it, it took us a while. And so it's not like you just go buy an engine and throw it in a dragster and, 
you know, everything to do. You know, there's so many people out there running them. They can tell you where to set the four link, what shocks yeah. run, what converter, what transmission, what rear gear load. They know everything. And the door cart, uh, me and Joey has thing and John Kyle, we've, we have, uh, we've struggled. <laughs> and, and it's just, it's, it's a different program, a little bit different, different, uh, to do than, than the dragsters. There's just so many dragsters that it's already been tried and proven. And right. it's just, so I'm not going to say easy, but it's easier than putting in a door car. No, it definitely sounds like it is not for the weak of heart. With that said, like, do you feel like at this point, you and, and a handful of others that have that have got a handle on this combination and top sportsman, is it to the point where you could, let's say I wanted to go top sportsman race and could I call Jimmy Lewis and say like, okay, here's, here's what I want to do. Is that combination replicable or do you feel like, just part of running top sportsman is that every one of those cars is going to want something a little bit different. I think we could duplicate it fairly easy at this point. However, I go back to my super gas roots. You know, we would put a, a four link or a converter or whatever in a, a super gas car. And we go out there and two or three runs, we're on a 90 and it repeats and you don't, I mean, you basically fuel them and check the tires and charge a battery and, you don't worry about it. You go track to track wherever you want to go. And if the cars start acting up, it's because you got a bad shock, a bad tire. You got some kind of problem with the top sportsman car going six thirties. You can have it going 100% down at Indy. We'll take Indy. For example, I'm hundred percent straight. Don't rattle the tire. Don't do nothing stupid. I go the next track. I got to start working on the four link because it's driving one way or another. And early on, Joe Hessling's telling me, well, we got to change four link. We got to do this. We got to do that. Well, I'm the guy that I don't change nothing before first round, hardly between time trials and certainly not during the race. And now I'm changing four link between runs, between qualifying, between rounds. When, when the car does, like it acted crazy at Vegas, I'm back in the pits tire off changing four link and thinking nothing of it <laughs> so but there again i get it going straight at vegas and i go to the next track it may or may not go straight it just it's it's always it's not on the edge but it's it's certainly something you got to keep a watch on so we could duplicate the combination and have somebody go down the track but they're gonna have to stay on top of them. And, and that's something i've had to learn i've had a, quite a few people helping me in the chassis part to, to, to be able to learn that, to adjust on it constantly and, and know what it needs. Yeah. Such a juxtaposition from what you were used to, like what I'm used to today, where like you say, you don't work on them between rounds unless you have to. And that's, that's a, you can't go, you can't go through life in top sportsman with that attitude, right? No, no, you have to be willing and able to work on it every run if necessary. Let's walk through a little bit of your what ultimately became your, your championship season. It didn't look particularly promising early, right? You start the season with, a, a, I think it was a semifinal finish at your first divisional event in Houston, and then didn't make another event for two to three months. Was that due to a car issue, or was that part of scheduling? No. Uh, when we went in Houston in the semis, the car missed the 2-3 shift. Went on the chip, been a valve. I pull the heads off. I was going to change valves out myself. Well, we checked with the valve manufacturer, which they were new valves, but because it over revved it, it, it touched the piston, bent it. So 
valve manufacturer told us three weeks to get valves. Okay, well, I'll just send the heads to Joey and let them change the valves. Well, the three weeks turned into 10, and I missed two races at Dallas, the double divisional. I missed the Tulsa race. So I was three months down, not able to race at all, looking on the internet for a super gas car to buy <laughs> to go racing. And uh, the we got the finally got the valves in, got the heads back, put the motor together, and that's when we went to Denver. And that worked out well. Yes, very well. <laughs> Number one qualifier win the race. Yes. Was there so any the, any opportunity to test prior to Denver, or was that slap it back together and head to? We had an opportunity to test, and and Phyllis actually asked me, "Are we going to test?" I said, "I'm not sure that." I have enough runs in the car to go test because <laughs> every time you test, you know, those runs, there's something else that, you know, super gas, super comp, we, we could test every day of the week if we wanted to, because we got plenty of runs in the combination. These cars are limited on runs. The tires are limited, the engine train, everything is limited on runs. And so every time you go test, you just use up some of those runs that you may need later in the year to make rounds. And so I said, no, we're not going to test. We're putting it together and we're going to Denver, which we did. And it worked out. So, so we go win Denver. Is that the point you've been to two races? You got a semi and a win. Like that's, that's a positive, but it's also what mid July, right? Um, go through, a uh, the national and the two divisionals at Topeka without a ton of success roll into Indy. I'm just going to assume at that point, it's Labor Day. You've only been to five races. Um, I would assume like the championship's not even really a thought that's crossing your mind at that point. Absolutely not. I've, I've wasted too much time, missed too many races to think about a championship at this point. Sure. And then you've got Indy, like it's the, it's the U.S. Nationals. Had you won Indy prior to this year? No, I've been in two finals there. Never won that third time's charm. <laughs> right. And we talked about it extensively on this show. Like you can take me through it on, on your end, obviously, but I think it was the semifinal and the final at Indy. I, I just kind of went nuts about it here on the podcast for about a half an hour because the racing was so tight. The job you did, at least from the outside, so impressive. Cause I think you're down like 20 mile an hour to take six thousandths essentially over your shoulder one round. And then the final with Firestone was a super close race. Like, I guess that's indicative of, top sportsmen today, particularly at Indy, when we get the best of the best to converge upon one facility. I guess you could, A, walk me through the event, and then B, like, how special was it in your career, which spans, you know, what, three plus decades and and probably more trips to Indy than you care to count to finally stand on that stage with that Wally? Yeah, that is correct. That's always on your bucket list. And uh, that's, that was always a favorite race, a high point race of the year for Tracy when I ran with him and drove his stuff. And yes, to be there twice before in the final and not close the deal, it's pretty tough. But to go to Indy to run top sports, when I went the, the first year in 19, the first year they had it there, I went there, qualified I don't know, top 10, I think, and went out first round, just an error on my part. And didn't go in 20 because of 2020. And then this year, well, we set out so much this year waiting on uh, Tofils. I said, if, if we, when we get a chance, I'm 
typically a fair weather racer. When it looks like rain, I don't know. If it's too hot, go. <laughs> well, this year I said, it don't matter for race. And I, so we did. And we went to Indy and qualified good. I don't know, top five or six, I think. And all of my races were pretty tight there in Indy. I mean, not some not as tight as others, but yeah, the car too is pretty, uh, pretty sensitive on track. So it's hard to dial it real hard because you don't know what the track's going to do. It may get out there in the middle of low gear and quiver the tire, and then you just gave up a hundredth or two. And so you've kind of got to be ready for that. And, and that's what I did all the way up until the final. And, and I kind of held some to make sure I had some cushion in case it did quiver the tire. And then I get to the final. We were pretty tight then. I mean, we're running within probably 30 minutes or maybe 45 minutes of the previous round. And by then the tracks settled in. It's not sundown, but it's starting to go down and tracks cooling down some. And so by the final, I pretty much knew what the car would run. And I know Alan dials pretty hard. I said, well, if he's dialing hard, I'm going to dial hard and plan on leaving on him. And that's what happened and i just there i got on <laughs> and it's indy it was it was awesome you uh you had mentioned driving the finish line and you had mentioned earlier in, in our conversation that 200 mile an hour in, in the 200 what 30 mile an hour in the in the right door car doesn't feel as fast as you would think but just talk me through like how does your mindset change in terms of how you're driving the finish line compared to say your what our what our listeners would probably most associate with your super comp or super gas car? Obviously, it's happening quicker. Uh, you're you're going faster. I assume that there has to be a little bit more attention paid to where you're going. Like, just kind of walk through that. It's not so bad. The finish line, uh, my car, in particular, if it gets through low gear. It's like it's on cruise. I mean, it just drives good. It doesn't do anything crazy. If it does it, it's going to do it in the first gear. And once it gets in the second gear, I'm good to go. I can look around. I can do whatever. But as far as uh, driving the finish line, you know, it's not a lot different really than super gas, super comp, because we had big mile an hour differences there also. So depending on who you're running, you kind of know how you're closing on them or they're closing on you. And, and uh, it's to me, it's not a lot different. Your visibility is the only thing in a door car. You you pretty much got to look way on down track to figure out where you're going because if you you don't have the option to look right in front of you like you wouldn't a roadster or dragster because you just you can't see it. So you, I mean, to me, it's not that much difference. The the thing I do notice is when we eighth mile bracket race top sportsman race that car closes on most of my opponents and at half track it just about time it shifts to high gear i'm there at finish line i mean i'll close on real fast in eighth mile but quarter mile i mean unless it's a really really slow car like spotting them a second i'm not going to be closing on them as fast as it would seem like possibly yeah no i would assume that the opposite just because it seems like your car is relatively tame down low and then just runs a ton of speed so it's got a back half 
I don't know, it's probably it's 80 miles an hour from the eighth mile to the quarter or something <laughs> like that difference. I don't think there's that quite that much difference. It's uh, it'll go 178 wow. in the and a half track, <laughs> so it's, it's not quite that much difference. But it, and it may look calm down low, but it tells <laughs> me otherwise at times. And we have so much power out of it down low just to get it through low gear, and mm -hmm. we continually touch up that that time and map to try it like at vegas you know the sun went down on me in the final there and shook the tire and and so i'm constantly working on the grid to try to keep that from happening right so you're constantly on that edge whether it's four link adjustment timing adjustment it, it's every round basically trying to to make sure that we get down the racetrack right sometimes yes every round it's not always that way and and you know, it depends on which race we're at. They keep the track better than they do it. You just kind of have to pay attention to that, too. What are you looking for in that regard? Prep, mostly. If they run, you know, a lot of classes without prepping in between, that's usually not good for me. Gotcha. I, I, mean, I need it to be prepped pretty good. I, and I'm, I think that's kind of what happened at Vegas in the final it, track got away from me and they had so many cars running that they on our qualifying days they were prepping quite a few times during the day and then elimination they had i guess they probably just had so many cars there wasn't time to prep it or i don't know what happened but it anyway it got away from me in, in the final and it just it, it it the the war was won by then i just lost the battle right 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 um now, obviously, I want to get to that week and, and all the, the logistics leading up to it. After winning Indy, did points begin to become a focus then, or was it really not until Dallas? After Indy, I, I kind of just wanted to – I figured I'd just plan on staying in the top ten, try to stay in the top ten, and that's why I went to St. Louis to the national and then the divisional afterwards, mm -hmm. which didn't work out either. Uh, there I broke a transmission on the first of the two divisionals I, after my second qualifier broke transmission. So I was unable to run that race. And then I had to withdraw from the second race. But okay. at this point, I'm, I'm still thinking top 10 is the best I'm going to do. Yeah. This is where the season and then after really hectic because like I'm looking at your points ledger and I knew that you were at the, the first two races at St. Louis, and I assume that there was parts breakage involved in, in not making the, the, the second leg of the doubleheader. I didn't even realize that you didn't get to stage for first round of the first one. And then it's less than a week later that you're hoisting the Wally at Dallas. Uh, walk me through that week. Well, we when I broke the transmission at, and on the first race, we pulled transmission out, and Joe Hesting was there with his pickup truck, so he hauled it home with him. The transmission's the roster 400. Mm -hmm. So Joey hauled it home with him Sunday night, and then Monday morning had his dad take it over to roster and drop it off, and uh, I'd already let roster know it's on its way, and I figured, you know, that's probably a two- or three-week repair. Well... Carl told me at one time he had three people working on my transmission and uh, it, it uh, broke a gear set. What happened? So they tear it down. He's got, I guess, one guy fixing the gear set, one guy cleaning it up, one guy probably put clutches in and 
they got it Monday morning and Monday evening. It was on a truck on its way back to me. And uh, Wednesday morning, I picked it up at the dock at RNL Carrier, come home, put it in, uh, loaded up. Of course, Ennis is 45 minutes from home, but loaded up, went to Ennis. That was on Wednesday evening, qualified Thursday, I don't top five again. I don't know what number it was, but qualified top five, win the race. Well, now it's time to hit the road. <laughs> no question. And I think it's it's important to bring up here. You've talked about the just the the round-to-round maintenance and, and work and tuning that goes into top sportsmen, not to mention like you're going low sixes at 200 plus mile an hour and even the best components, like there's going to be a, a level of attrition there. I think it's worth noting and correct me if I'm wrong, like you are a, a two person team. It's you and your wife, Phyllis, that does everything, right? That's correct. Yes. The, <laughs> the driving, the loading, the unloading, the taking care of the motor home, um, the running the car, the pushing the car back and forth, packing the chutes. That's all us. Love it. Yeah. So immediately from Dallas, then it's a trip to Tucson, Arizona. Was that in the cards regardless of how you did at Dallas? Or was this all kind of fly by seat of the pants? Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, I, I came to work after Dallas and uh, I had no idea what the schedule was for the rest of the races. I always know about Pomona and, and or Vegas Pomona, but had no idea what else went on between Dallas and Vegas. So I come home, come to work Monday. I'm looking to schedule, looking to calendar. I call Phyllis. I said, we got to go to Tucson. She said, <laughs> we leave. <laughs> so we, I, I think we were already, I didn't even, in fact, I always unload the car, put on my lift in my shop, and I always do maintenance, check valves, check compression, look it all over real good. And uh, I went home from work, I guess on Tuesday, and I didn't even unload the car. I pulled the valve covers, checked the valves, checked springs, checked compression. I did all my maintenance, my uh, most of my maintenance, I'll say. Not all of it, but what <laughs> I did, I did in the trailer. Didn't even untie the car and just you know, got the motor home ready. And Sir? Just to save time. But Yes. Yeah, I didn't have time to unload it and put on the lift and look at it like normal. And then we... They got everything the motor home and groceries loaded and we headed to Tucson and uh, got there, qualified number one, won the race. And uh, then same difference. We get back. And luckily it was a Friday, Saturday race. They had a national mm -hmm. open on Sunday. So we were able to get there, run the race and then travel home on Sunday, which mm -hmm. helped a lot for my job. But again, come to work Monday, uh, I get a, I look at the, I didn't even look at the schedule then. I just figured, you know, I need, I'll make them up at Vegas. And, and um, as you probably know, I had first rank. Well, in fact, when I went to Tucson, I only had four races, four division races. So that was my fifth. So that was a full count. But at this, I get a text from a buddy of mine on the East Coast. He said, Hey, you got to go to Rockingham. What? I didn't go Rockingham for it. Well, it's this weekend. They won't have a full field. There'll be less than 17 cars. You'll get a point per round. You're 22 behind. By second round, you can be even <laughs> with Mitzo, with Paul Mitzo's 
I'm mm-hmm. like, man, I got things about that. So I look at the schedule and I look at Rockingham's like, man, that's over a thousand miles. Done been 900 and something with Tucson. So I called <laughs> Phyllis. We got to go to Rockingham. When do we leave? <laughs> that was a <laughs> typical question. Went out first round. Bummed all. Again, it was a Friday, Saturday race with the Sunday national open. So we were traveling home on Sunday. And, and the Monday and Tuesday, I think, I look at the points and I was 22 behind. Well, now I'm 21 behind. It's like, why well, did that work? So I click on the points. Well, sure enough, just what my buddy told me, you get a point per round. And even though I went out first round, I still got a 31 instead of a 30. And right. I, no, that, I that because made I, that, that trip, that one point could have been really monumental because it swayed everything from to where without that, you had to outlast Mitsos at, uh, at Vegas. And with it, basically, you just had to go round for round with them. Right. I mean, it was a big swing. Yes, absolutely. And that's what I said when I saw that. I called Phyllis. I was laughing. I said, you know, that trip to Rockingham, I thought it was a waste of time. I said, right. but I got. And I got one point out of it. And I said, that one point might make all the difference down the road, down the road. And it, it, it didn't, but it could have, because there was a round in there. I think the round before I ran, uh, Ed open that I was, they said I was one point ahead. Right. No, it's, uh, it's funny. It's, it's, it's great to hear your, you walk through this because just here on the show, I think it was prior, it was after you won Dallas. So we were doing a, you know, lead up to the the season end kind of breaking down points and I'm going through, we're going through the favorites in top sports and I'm like, don't count out my man, Jimmy Lewis. Like he's a dark horse. The only way he's going to have a chance is if he's on the way to Tucson right now, as we record this. Well, not only were you on the way to Tucson, you won Tucson. <laughs> and then the next week I thought, well, we're again on the podcast. You can, you can go back and, and find this stuff. I did say it, right? I'm like, well, if Jimmy's really ambitious, you know, he could go to Rockingham this week. That Tucson to Rockingham to Vegas, that's that's the road less traveled. But, you know, if he does, it would improve his chances. And then one of our loyal listeners shouts to uh, to Brian Mullaney, texts me and says, you're not going to believe this. Jimmy Lewis is on the qualifying sheet at Rockingham. Like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> so this all sets up for the drama that that was the, the Vegas points meet. Obviously, you've got there was one week off after Rockingham, right? So you got a little bit of a, a breath and time to prepare. Take me through your thoughts coming into Vegas. What are what's your idea of what has to happen? What's your relationship with Paul Mitsos and, and kind of walk through the, the the event? Well, and I had never met Paul before Vegas, and we were in line to qualify, and, and he came up and introduced himself. Super nice guy, really nice family introduced me to his mom and dad, uh, Ryan Pretty, his crew chief, and just, they're just an awesome family. And, and Paul, for what he accomplished at Vegas, I don't know if you know the whole story there, but on Friday, our qualifier, Paul broke his car, I think transmission or something, didn't even make a qualifying run. He goes back, puts transmission in, Saturday morning, warming the car up, motor drops a valve. Yeah, so he can't even qualify the second round. They got to call back to California and get another car brought. And he didn't get qualified until the third session in wow. a car that he had never been in before. So 
in my mind, for him to go any rounds at all is just unbelievable for me. And, and just no did an kidding. awesome job, which I know he had a good car and it's a good combination. And it's actually the car that Ryan ran the week before in comp at the national event. That's the car oh, wow. he raced. Yeah. So really nice family. And, and you know, I told Paul, you know, how long I've been doing this, some of my history that I've been through. And, and I told Paul afterwards, I said, you know, brother, I, I know how you feel. I've been there many mm -hmm. occasions I've been there and he said, Hey, I'm just fine. You know, I'm finished number two in the world and I'm okay with it. I said, well, I'm glad you are, but I know how you feel and it's not a good feeling, but anyway, super nice family. But to answer the rest, some of the rest of your question, when I went to Vegas, I had people ask me and, and I'm not, I mean, I look at points after they're tallied and on the, the NHRA site, but I don't like the point per round under 16 cars. I didn't keep up with that. Didn't know. Right. And I just, like I said, I got text on that and I'm, I'm good at math, but I don't keep up with points that much. I just try to win every round I can and let it work itself out in the end. So when I went to Vegas, that's what people asked me. He said, what do you got to do? I said, well, I got to win the race. That's what I came here for. And I don't know <laughs> what that means in points, but I know if I win the race, it's not going to be a bad thing. So anyway, it was, it was kind of funny because the first round, Paul got qualified on his last session and qualified well. I don't remember what number, but qualified good. And so first round, we roll up there and I run out first ahead of him and i i don't think i mean just happened that way you know the way they put us in the lanes and i go out there and win my round but he's behind me a pair or two or whatever he wins his round we go up second round my i shook the tire my guy goes down there and breaks out mm -hmm. well okay i'll take it <laughs> well then paul comes through he wins his round so i think at that point we were maybe tied or close to it or something because I, I was working on first round he was working on second round i think so we go up there for the next round and i don't mean we kept going back and forth on who ran first and who got to watch who win and all that so anyway we go up there and i think it's third round i won and then paul was behind me and he won and i went over and told him i said we didn't shut down there and i went over and told him i said man you're sure not making this easy on me and his mom <laughs> miss irene she said that's a two-way street i said yes ma'am it is <laughs> we had a lot i had a lot of fun with it paul was i think he was i don't know that he was stressed out but i think it was probably uh tough to, i mean it's tough on anybody to do but i'm just i that car that is just such a blast to drive and to bracket race a 630 door car is so much fun and and that's what we've been doing all year is having fun and especially after i hurt the valve again i didn't think i was going to be able to run for the world so i'm just out here run for the money and have fun and that's pretty much what we did and even all the way to the final you know I, in fact i think it was a semi i think when i rolled on the tower for the semis they announced that i was a point ahead because paul had went out the round before and i had won and at that point, Paul had even told me that Ed Open was the only one that could catch either one of us because he still had Vegas and Pomona mm -hmm. to run. And so we rolled out into the tower, and I've got Ed Open in the semis, and I think they said I was a point ahead at that point. Well, I went and ran Ed and beat Ed, and I come back to trailer, and I'm doing my normal routine between rounds. You know, Phil's packing the chutes. I'm fueling a car, cooling transmission, charging batteries, just normal deal. And my good friend, uh, Craig Blaisdell, he comes in the trailer and he said, 
you just won the world. Huh? He said, you just won the world. I said, how do you know that? He said, it's on Drag Race Central. Well, if it's on Drag Race Central, it must be true. So <laughs> I hollered out to Trader Phil. We just won the world. She said, well, good. Let's go win another round. So we tried, <laughs> but we didn't quite do it. But it was a lot of fun. And and I had somebody ask me, too, before about the pressure. You know, there's, there's a lot of pressure on you because of what you had to do to win the world. I said, not really. To me, I've been in both positions. I'm sure you have. I've been in a position of looking over my shoulder with points lead. I've been in the position of looking ahead of me because I was behind in points. And to me, the pressure's on the guy looking over his shoulder. I've got everything to gain and nothing to lose. Paul had everything to lose and nothing to gain because he's already in the one spot. So I say, I'm just out there doing my normal deal, having fun. And it worked out. No, I would agree from a, from a psychological standpoint or a mental approach. I think it's always easier. It's probably not the right word, but mentally, I think it's easier to, to be the, the hunter than it is the hunted, right? I think so. Yeah. I, like I say, I've been in both spots and, and I, I'm not going to lie. I like being out front. I wouldn't have a problem with that, but I think in, in the position I was in, there was less pressure on me because of where I was at. Right. I think there's a tendency to, to feel like you're defending something when you're in the lead. And ultimately that's not really the case, but I think that's kind of the go-to. Uh, well, and what happens when you're out there in, in my mind, what happens is you're trying not to lose. Right. When you're out front, I'm trying to win because that's what I have to do. Exactly. I'm out front. I'm trying to be careful, not red light, not break out and not do this. So I'm trying not to lose. And that's, that's not what got me where I was at. Exactly. It's not, not the best way to go about winning for sure. I, I love the way that you framed everything around the, 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 the pressure that goes, that comes along with the nature of that situation. And I, and I love the way you said like, look, I'm just having fun. It's easier to be the, the hunter than the hunted. I would have to imagine too, that whether it is just simply a, a, a factor of life experience, you know, and, and just getting to a, I would, I, I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, Jimmy. I feel like you're probably in a different place with your racing than you were 20, 30 years ago, regardless of success in between now and then. And then you combine that with the fact that you've won a world championship and you've had near misses on a couple of occasions. I feel like the experience of having been through that helps to some extent, like, you know, at least what you're getting into when you get into that situation. I agree hundred percent on that. And, and I think that's why I raced the way I did, especially at Vegas. Like I said, I had everything to gain and nothing to lose. The worst I could do is two or three in the world. Well, I just go out there and go for it. And if I win the world, then okay. If I didn't, well, I gave it every shot. I asked like, you know, the Tucson Rockingham Vegas deal, that opportunity don't come up every year as much as we would like for it to. And as much as we plan on it to come up every year, just don't. So that's why I had to take every shot. I didn't want to get to Vegas and for some reason, not win the world and say, well, look, I should have went to Rockingham and right. I could have won it there. So I wanted to take every opportunity that was left. I didn't have all of them, but I wanted to take everything that was left and make the, try to make the best of it. Yeah, That's no question. You you'd mentioned, I thought it was a cool um, um, anecdote of 
the conversation that you had with Paul once everything was over, you know, almost kind of trying to console him like, hey, I've been there. What is the what has been the closest miss for you? And and walk me through that. Like I I, I think it was 2000. You were second to Sheldon Gecker. Is that is that the nearest miss? Actually, 99. I won the world in 98. Super gas. Right. 99. I, I was I don't remember what number I was, but Phoenix was the last division race of the year. And I went to Phoenix. And when I got there, I, somebody asked me, said, well, what do you got to do to, to win? I said, well, I, or what do you got to do to win the world? I said, I got to win the race. Simple as that. That's what I'm here for. I got to win the race. And that was, it took, even winning the race was only going to put me ahead. Uh, John Vineyard, if I remember right, John Vineyard was leading and mm-hmm. I was second or third. And then Sheldon was on down the line a ways. And even winning was going to put me ahead by just a few points. It wasn't even a full round, I don't think. And so when I get to Phoenix, well, back then it was a eight round race. I said, man, the pressure's off now. All I got to do is run her up to win the world. Well, I semied, oh. it, I semied and it had to be an eight round race and Sheldon had to win. And I had to go out before the final for Sheldon to win the world. And that all and fell into place. It, everything fell in place as a perfect storm. Sheldon won it. John Vineyard finished second. I finished third. We were separated by like six points from one to three was a six point spread. Wow. That was probably the closest. And, and I was really bummed out that particular year. And the, and the same as Vegas Pomona, the next weekend was Pomona and I was going on there anyway. So it was like, I don't know, three o'clock in the morning or something. And we headed to Pomona. I told Phyllis, I said, I'm not going to sleep. There's no point staying here overnight. I'm just going to drive. So we drove straight to Vegas from Phoenix. And, you know, it. that was probably the that one. And then when I ran IHRA, I had uh, the Super Rod class. I was I went into, to, matter of fact, Rockingham was the world finals. And I went to Rockingham leading that and leading it by so much that the IHRA people were coming over to get my ring size and jacket size. And I told them, I said, Hey, this ain't over. You know, there's other people that can still win it. I know I'm out there a ways, but people still win it. Well, another perfect storm. I had to go out first round and I forget the guy's name, but he had to win the race. He was a ways on back in points and he had to win the race. Well, I went out first round. He won the race. <laughs> he won the world. So I've wow. had a couple of really close near misses. And yeah, I don't so I get can, any easier. No, and I can see then too your point. Like when you first said, like, um, yeah, I didn't really keep up with the points, and Craig came down and told me I won. I'm like, I guess that's true. We won. I'm like, hey, there's no way he's not actually keeping up with it. After something going through something like that, I just don't I think I think it's fair to assume you don't ever take anything for granted. Like I, I'm gonna keep racing until they tell me till they hand me the trophy, right? Absolutely, 100 percent And you know, you can count points all you want to, but when you go to races and you're thinking you're for us, our full count, well, except for Vegas, a few races, for the most part, our full counts a 95 point win. Right. Well, then you go to races like Rockingham and it's an 85 point win. So how do you count points until you get there? So, right. Yeah. It can get, and, you know, I could read up on that and keep up with the, point per round and all that but i really don't need to i've got enough people around me that do it for me apparently so because they text me and tell me what points are and 
what I, you know, I said, I knew we were two rounds apart. And I knew I was working on first round. He was a second round. But I didn't know who else. I said, who else is in a mix? And he told me, he said, Ed opened. But he's, I think Ed had to go to Vegas Pomona. But, yeah, I, I'm better off to just race and worry about rent, winning rounds than I am counting points because they have people out in California to count. <laughs> I think uh, Anthony Bertozzi told me that at one point. He's like, you know, you don't you don't have to keep up with them points every round. If you win it, they'll bring you the trophy at the end. Like that, that. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, sir, they will. <laughs> It's um, kind of like carrying cars. You know, people look at ladders all the time. And I went back when I ran super gas, they pair us like, who do you got? I don't know. They right. said, what do you mean you don't know? I got a deal. And it works out good for both of us. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So everything we've done to this point has been pretty zoomed in. Let's zoom out just a little bit. And I'm just curious your perspective on this. Two NHRA World Championships with 23 years apart how is juxtapose the two like how is your your feelings your emotions after after winning this one how is that different from what it felt like to you in 1998 or is it it is different and the first one was i kind of like just such a relief to get that done because as you know there's very few that will ever accomplish that, that have or ever will. And so it was such a relief, I think, in 98 to get that done. And then such a bummer the following year to miss it and missed it several years since then. And this one here, it, it's, it, it's, it wasn't, it was the relief, I guess, at some point, but it was almost for somebody to miss three months of the year three crucial months to come back and win the world is just it's unheard of it's it's and the travel like we've talked about all the travels we've done the, the last probably five or six weeks of the season was just a whirlwind i just unbelievable and i can look at the points to make sure i'm Pomona after uh, after vegas we were in pomona i checked it two or three times a day it uh, just right? it's so so unbelievable. It just you just can't plan stuff like this. It just it just happens. Well, I I'd mentioned earlier, but I I think it's worth revisiting to some extent. Particularly uh, the logistics of what you did is probably just from afar the most impressive part. Like just to reiterate, in in three consecutive weeks, it's win at Dallas, win at Tucson, Arizona trip to Rockingham, North Carolina, which is not close to Tucson, Arizona, for those of you that don't have an atlas handy. Um, and then back home for a week and then back to Vegas. So ultimately you went Tucson to Vegas via Rockingham, right? Probably not the, the, the most logical geographic setup, but you got to do what you got to do. And again, to reiterate, it's just you and your wife, Phyllis. And I think most importantly, it's something that we haven't necessarily touched on. I think you've alluded to, you guys both hold down full-time jobs, right? That is correct. Yes, sir. Obviously, there's some some support from your employers involved as well. Well, yes, my normal work week is three days a week. I work double shifts, two days a week, single shift one day. Mm -hmm. So I work 40 hours in three days. So you've done that for years, right? 
Yes, for pro- close uh, probably 19 years anyway. And uh, so mine is real racer friendly. Phyllis works uh, two. She works three days a week. She works two days a week from home and one at the office. And she told her boss up front what all when we went to Indy. She worked from Indy the whole time. Uh, she told him up front what we were doing, and she got all of her work done on the road. And when we were in St. Louis, she, we stayed there the week between the national and divisional. She worked from St. Louis, and her boss knew. And, and then I've got a lot of vacation time because I've been here 19 years and working three days a week. You don't use a lot of vacation unless I don't, unless I'm racing. So, yes, we do hold down full-time jobs, and uh, it's a plate full sometimes. You know, the the I think I told you earlier, the the Tucson, Rockingham, we were over 4,000 miles in two weeks is what we drove. And when I was at Rockingham, I got on one of the map applications on the computer. And, and I just, for grins, I did leave my home, go to Tucson, come back home, go to Rockingham, back home, go to Vegas, Vegas, Pomona, back home. It was over 7,000 miles in like five weeks or whatever the time frame was. <laughs> Yeah. Somebody <laughs> joked here at work says, well, you're going to need change oil on the motorhome after all that. Yeah, probably so. Right. <laughs> yeah, no question. And I mean, just the mileage is impressive enough. And then when you, when you step back from that and say, okay, within that journey, you're in three final rounds with two wins. And essentially, I know you probably weren't thinking about it this way in the moment, but essentially like on command, that's what you had to do to win the world. And when you zoom out from that, it's just such an incredible story. Yes. And I, and I knew, I didn't know exactly how many rounds I had to win to win the world, but I knew I needed to win every round I could. And that's, you know, the Dallas, because it's my home track, that's always a dream win. But then to go to Tucson, a track I've never been to and, and uh, I actually called Jim Hughes before I left. I said, hey, how's your track? Can run my 630 car on your track. And he said, oh, yeah, you'll be fine. And, and he was in Dallas doing the no prep stuff. But anyway, yeah, to go out there, and I, I know I've got to win. I mean, that's, it's, it's like the old saying, expect to win. That's what I did. I went to win. So I didn't know anything less. And fortunately, it worked out. And I just, to kind of look at everything as a whole, like you win Denver, which is obviously a race in and of itself. Like very, you, everything about Denver is unique to Denver. I know that you've done that before and it's not completely outside your wheelhouse. The, the trip to Tucson, like that race gets shortened to eighth mile. You're back across the country racing at sea level and then back to Vegas. Like I can only imagine, I feel like you, what you had alluded to earlier any top sportsman car going that speed is somewhat temperamental on its own. And then you're racing in the most adverse conditions that the NHRA tour has to offer. Yes. Uh, Denver. And I ran there before in super gas, super comp, but we made so many changes to go to Denver for those cars that it, it just was really wasn't worth it because you, I mean, we changed converter, we changed gear, we changed a bunch of stuff to go to Denver and all for one week, we go to the next race. And then this year it was Topeka divisional. Then you got to change it all back. Well, now that we're running on a, on a dial in bracket car, we tuned it up and uh, we, uh, Joey, again, he's had some customers that run up there and he kind of gave me a heads up for what to do. And, and I did what he thought. And, 
and that was about half of what I needed to do where we found out after my first qualifier. And uh, so it's just easier to make the pro charger car and the wide open car run there because you, you don't have to try to get a light. It's a full tree. So it's going to get a light. You don't have to worry about hitting a particular number. You just pick your own. So I always thought I've been wanting to go to Denver to run top sportsman for probably 10 years. And every year something happens. I don't have the car ready. I don't have, uh, don't fit in the schedule. There's always a, something that, happens that I've never made it so I finally made it and I, there's just nothing quite like winning on the mountain yeah I could imagine cool stuff so I do want to give you the opportunity to just use this platform I know uh, obviously your wife Phyllis you'd mentioned Joey and the guys at APD Rossler obviously you've got a lot of help to make this happen at this level so I just wanted to give you this platform to, to thank the people that you need to thank yeah, all the glory goes to God because I couldn't do any of it without him. Um, it, it is, Phyllis, uh, she's a big help. Mike, the, the Carl Roster, all the guys at Roster, you said, uh, Farron and they helped me a lot. Uh, Greg Samuel, FTI, he helps me a lot. I mean, he builds an awesome converter and, and a guy super gas raced with forever. He's the one that actually modified the car to make the pro charger engine fit in because, like, it was a, a blown. Uh, he helps a lot. Trish Allen, she. Trisha uh, uh, Owen now, she's she helps us a lot when she's there, but she's not able to go as much as she once did, but she helps us a lot. And when we were in Vegas, and he's another one that keeps up with points and keeps up with us racing and water goes to God. Wouldn't be able to do it without him. And Phyllis, she does a lot. It makes it easy for my driving part with all the work that she does on the car and getting everything ready and uh like you said, Joey Hessling, John Kyle, all the guys at APD, Carl Rossler, Rossler Transmission, all them guys there, uh, Farron at Hoosier Tire, uh, Jack Campbell, a guy I work with, I run Supergas with forever. He's the one that actually modified my car to make the Pro Charger engine fit in. And uh, it wasn't a small feed either. It, it was a blown small block comp car when I got it. And oh my. so he had to do a lot of work to that. Uh, Bobby Shattuck, yeah, Bobby Shattuck's a good friend of mine. He used to run Super Gas. He keeps up with us all the time and, and always watches it on, on NHRA.tv. Uh, Trisha Owen, she goes with you, helps us. She used to help us a lot. She's not able to go as much as she once did, but she's still there to help us. Uh, RFC guys are always there praying for us. And I, I usually need quite a few prayers, sometimes more than other in that car. But, uh, I'm sure uh, probably a few I forgot. Oh, uh, Greg Samuel, FTI. He builds an uh, awesome converter. That that it, It's just brought some of my program around. He really does a good job. So Very good. Well, Jimmy, congratulations on a phenomenal season, a, a great story. I think one that, that you and, and many of us will be talking about for years to come. 
And just like broader scale than that, I was telling producer Mark before you came on the air, I'm like, this guy was a legend in my area when I was growing up. And I mean, I don't want to date you, Jimmy, but I mean, that's 30 years ago. Like you've been doing this at a high level for a long time. So I just want to say congratulations, not only on, on your success in 2021, but on this body of work that, you know, is a, is a life in terms of racing. Like what you've done is really, really impressive and spans a, a long period of time at a really high level. So congratulations to you, sir. Well, thank you. I appreciate that and appreciate you keeping up. And, and, uh, I started just for your record. I started running super gas in 1985. 1985. Wow. Yes. So it's been a good run. We've had a lot of fun, a lot of success and, a lot of good cars, really good cars. That helps too, as you well know. No question. What, uh, just broadly speaking, and you may not have even given it a ton of thought, but what does the future hold? What are, what are your plans going forward for 2022? Well, we're at, right now the engines at APD getting freshened. The transmission is fresh from breaking it. Uh, I broke, I actually broke a rear end at uh, Pomona, my second qualifier, it broke all the teeth off the pinion. So I got sent that back to Mark Williams, got that fixed. So it'll get any rear gear for next year, fresh engine, and um, really just try to do the same thing we did without skipping three months of the year and hopefully repeat. <laughs> Fantastic. It sounds like a hell of a plan. Again, Jimmy, man, thank you for coming on with us. Congratulations on a great season and uh, always good to catch up with you. Yes, sir. Thank you. And Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Jimmy Lewis for joining us on this week's show. Thanks to producer Mark for pushing the buttons and pulling the strings behind the scenes. Thanks always to Mapadna, Big Jed, even though he could not be here this week. Thanks to our partners. Uh, be sure to support Jegs, BTE, Manscaped, uh, the companies that bring you the Sportsman Drag Racing Podcast. And ultimately, thank you for listening. We had a couple other kind of recent developments that we wanted to, to bring up on this show, but I think I'll table them for when Jed can join me. Uh, I, I have not sat down with him, but I think the plan is to, to have one more episode prior to the holidays. I'm sure we'll take the week off between Christmas and New Year's. But uh, I believe we'll have something for you next week. And at that time, we'll catch up on some of the, the news that has caught my eye uh, or our eyes over the course of the last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, I believe that, uh, that, that Jed is going to put one specific racetrack on blast. So stay tuned for that. That'll be fun. Uh, Roger Brogdon has upped the ante. I don't know if you've seen this. Competition eliminator, next year's Division Four champion. Not 50 grand, $100,000 unreal what Roger Brogdon is doing for, for that class and, and division four specifically. We'll talk about that some next, next episode. Plus uh, SFG really caught my eye in saying that ultimately, particularly if assuming that I guess um, West Palm beach PBIR is shut down is, is no longer a racetrack, which seems relatively imminent. Uh, I'm not actually sure the, the current situation of that, but assuming that that goes away, SFG wants to pick up the five-day in very much its original form. I was intrigued by that. We'll talk about that next episode as well, but that's a little bit of a primer. Between now and then, like, share this episode on whatever um, um, outfit you are listening to it on, and, uh, and be sure to subscribe if you have not already. You can follow Jed and I, interact with us on Twitter. He is JP, at JP11X. I am at Luke Bogacki. That's B-O-G-A-C-K-I. And uh, no shouts this week. We'll wrap it there. We will see you guys again next week. You know,
Enrollment in This Is Bracket Racing Elite is now open. You've heard me discuss, or at least reference, This Is Bracket Racing Elite. It is the premier offering of our website, thisisbracketracing.com. Elite is a membership community designed specifically to help you get from where you are today as a racer to who you want to be as a racer. Led by knowledgeable professionals, Justin Lamb and myself are longtime instructors and we bring in a host of guests, racers that you know, racers that you respect, led by knowledgeable instructors and surrounded by supportive peers that are ultimately striving for the same goal in their own unique way. The truth is at each event, there are a hundred plus entries. There's one winner. At the end of each season, there's one champion. That feeling, not so much the money, not so much the trophy, that feeling of achievement, that sense of accomplishment, that tip of the cap from your peers, that's why we do this. You can dream of that feeling all you want, or you can take action, take steps toward becoming that racer. If you're ready to take the first step, this is Bracket Racing Elite is for you. Enrollment is open now for a limited time. Learn more at thisisbracketracing.com slash elite before we close the doors again on December the 8th.